I am he. Well, today we're excited to continue our series, Meet Jesus, which we kicked off on Easter weekend last week. And today, for who we're going to see Jesus through the eyes of, I'm going to invite you to turn to John chapter 3 in a Bible. Uh, if you have one, if not, there's one in the pew rack in front of you here in the West Auditorium. They've got some in the East Auditorium, and hopefully we've got something you can uh, look at online. Or, of course, we are going to uh, cheat and use the screen anyway. But uh, with that, as you turn there, so a few weeks ago, I was uh, riding in a van with my daughter and a group of her peers when one of them touts, hey, I was able to get Taylor Swift concert tickets. Uh, to which, if you are unfamiliar, apparently, uh, this person's kind of a big deal, and um, the tickets were incredibly difficult to get. Uh, In fact, there's like a whole lawsuit deal with Ticketmaster, the whole night, it's a big thing. So anyway, the one gal uh, says, I was able to get tickets to the Taylor Swift concert, to which I respond from the front seat, who's he? Now, the outrage and the yelling and the tears and like these girls losing their minds at just how out of touch and old I apparently am. Uh, Now, to let you all in, like I knew and know exactly who Taylor Swift is, but I was just having a little fun at their expense. And so I'm like, oh, it's a girl, oh, okay. And it's like, like, what's the song she's known for? And they're like, the song? Like, I mean, they're just going berserk. Like, even my 16-year-old daughter's like, 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 Dad, like, like, really? Like, seriously, like, Dad, like, oh, like, she just cannot believe that this is just uh, who her dad is not uh, in this world. Anyway, so uh, on and on it went so long that when I tried to convince them, like, hey, I know who T-Swizzle is, uh, they wouldn't believe me. Like, they thought I was trying to, like, save face, uh, even though I knew exactly, I guess I'd just taken it too far. Well, one night, a couple thousand years ago, there was a man by the name of Nicodemus who you could say got his hands on a rare ticket uh, to do, as our series title suggests, to actually meet Jesus, uh, as that's what this series is all about. We are looking through the eyes of those who originally first met Jesus uh, nearly 2,000 years ago so that we can encounter him through our own eyes and their experiences as recorded in the scriptures but as dramatized by this unique TV miniseries called The Chosen. And you could say, uh, like the back and forth that I had with the girls about who Taylor Swift was and what uh, she was all about, uh, in, in many ways, Nicodemus had this conversation going on within him. Like, who is this Jesus? What is he all about? And I'm not sure I fully understand. And so this is how Nicodemus, you could say, closes the gap between some of his questions about who Jesus is and actually getting to meet him. It's recorded this way, how Nicodemus first meets Jesus, John chapter three, starting in verse one. Now there was a Pharisee, a man by the name of Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night. And so Nicodemus, he is one of like the key religious leaders of the times. And Nicodemus, he is like genuinely desiring to know who this Jesus is and by what power like he is healing and helping and teaching these people. And while 
You could say at the same time, Nicodemus's religious leader colleagues, they were uh, spending their time pitting themselves up against Jesus's experts by day. Uh, and so Nicodemus, he slips away from the religious ranks to meet with Jesus by the dark cover of night. And so in many ways, you could say that Nicodemus was the original Nick at night. <laughs> now, you all feel free, like amongst your friends and your family, to just use that, just drop that in at the dinner conversation, get the free laugh. You don't even have to give me credit. You all just, you can just own that as your own. It's that good. <laughs> Verse two. Nick, or Nicodemus, he, he came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Well, how can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And, and real quick, in fairness to Nicodemus, like this phrase, born again, it is completely brand new. He would have never have heard this phrase. Uh, and I think for maybe our purposes here today, if I could suggest that we might need to listen with new ears or view this with new eyes, uh, because maybe upon hearing that here in this context, maybe immediately you associate that phrase, born again, with a particular brand of Christianity or even maybe like a political ideology or something like that. But rather than you could say the words that Jesus spoke initially in John 3, which is what we're after. So I would invite you with new and fresh eyes to discover what Jesus meant by this phrase, born again. And so Jesus does this. He responds by saying, very truly I tell you, this is what it means, that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. So this is what Jesus is painting, this idea, this metaphorical being born again, that yes, physical birth gives birth to physical life, but God's spirit gives life to uh, a whole new kind of life, a whole new life led by Jesus Christ, by the power of God's Holy Spirit that is at work and alive inside of us. And from there, uh, the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, uh, Jesus explains how the spirit, it, how it's like the wind. And even though you can't see it, you can experience, you can feel it. Uh, he goes on to actually reference some events uh, that had taken place for their people hundreds of years prior in the wilderness, which we're actually gonna see uh, in the dialogue in the scene that we're gonna view here from the chosen here in just a moment. Uh, but really gets to this point where you could say this is the bottom line of Jesus explaining what it means to be born again in uh, chapter three, verse 16, or you might just simply know this verse as John 3.16. If you're familiar with that verse, this is right where we find it, right in this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus about what it means to be born again, to which Jesus says, this is what it's all about, that God so loved the world. And I could go on and read that to you, but instead, let's experience together this unfolding interaction through the eyes of Nicodemus when he, for the first time, meets Jesus. Thank you for agreeing to meet. Thank you for trying to help Mary when you did. It was no help. You were meant to be there. Me? 
fail miserably at an exorcism in the Red Quarter? <laughs> if you had not been there that day, would you be on this roof tonight? I don't know where to start. I have so many questions. I... Shall we sit first? Oh, yes, of course. slums. Hmm. Many wandering preachers have succeeded in gathering crowds with their rhetoric and fiery tone. I've heard a few of them over the years myself. So you know the type. Mm -hmm. But I have never heard anyone tell a paralytic to get up and walk, much less it actually happened. So what is your conclusion? I believe you are not acting alone. No one can do these signs you do without having God in him. Only someone who has come from God. And how is that belief going over in the synagogue? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why we are here at this hour. What else? What have you come here to show us? A kingdom. That is what our rulers are worried about. No, not that kind. Then what? A sort of kingdom that a person cannot see unless he is born again. Born again? Yes. You mean like a new creature? A conversion from Gentile to Jewish? No, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Then what is born again? <sighs> I hope you don't mean return to the womb, because that would be a problem for me. My mother, may she rest in peace, is dead. Truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. That part of you, that, is what must be reborn to new life. How can these things be? Ah, a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things, huh? I'm trying, Rabbi. I know, I know. Do you hear this? What? Listen. What do you hear? The wind. How do you know it's the wind? Because I can feel it. I hear its sound. Do you know where it comes from? No. Do you know where it's going? No. That's what it is to be born again of the Spirit. The Spirit may work in a way that is a mystery to you. And while you cannot see the spirit, you can recognize his effect. Mind is consumed with thoughts of what a stir these words would cause among the teachers of the law. Yes, and I do not expect otherwise. I speak of what I know and have seen, and it has not been received by the religious leaders. It is hard to receive. So if I have told you of earthly things, and you do not believe, 
How can I tell you heavenly things? I believe your words. I just fear you may not have a chance to speak many more of them before you are silenced. I have come to do more than speak words, Nicodemus. More miracles? Yes. But even more than that. Do you remember when the children of Israel complained against God and against Moses in the wilderness of Paran? Yes. They wanted to return to Egypt and they cursed the manna that God sent them. And then? They were bitten by serpents and they were dying. But? But God made a way for them to be healed. Moses lifted the bronze serpent in the desert and people only needed to look at it. So will the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Our people are not dying from snake bites. They're dying from taxation and oppression. I'm sorry to disappoint you. But I did not come to deliver the people from Rome. Then from what? From sin. From spiritual death. God loves the world in this way. That he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So this has nothing to do with Rome. It's all about sin. God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, Nicodemus. He sent him to save it through him. John three sixteen again. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, shall not live a dead end life, both in this life and into all of eternity in hell, but instead be given the gift of eternal life, born into a, a new life that's here and fully realized in all of eternity. Verse 17 goes on uh, in the words of Jesus, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't show up to say to the world you're going to hell, but instead to save the world through him. With this reality, verse 18, that whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. And so this is, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And even as you hear that, uh, you perhaps, maybe like Nicodemus, have questions. Have questions about how all of this works, like what it looks like to be spiritually born again. Like how is it that, you know, this good news that Jesus came to save the world through him, like what does it look like for me to believe in him or place my faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord? And then specifically here today, what we want to spend some time doing is answering some questions about, you could say, the role of baptism in what it looks like to be born again and how it relates to all of this, whether you were baptized some time ago and you're kind of maybe re-anchoring yourself in the meaning of that baptism, or maybe you're here and uh, you haven't been baptized, or maybe you were sprinkled and you're trying to figure out kind of where all of that fits. Like, where does being born again and declaring Jesus as Savior and Lord uh, kind of fit in with all of that? Because I would suspect that, uh, like Nicodemus, uh, like me, that you have questions about these things. 
And so when it comes to the role of baptism as it represents all of these things, uh, a verse that we lean into on a frequent basis here when it comes to understanding what the meaning of baptism is, is Romans 6.4, because it does so well at capturing the meaning of what it's all about. And it simply says it this way, that when it comes to our baptism, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And so what we see here, you could say, are two key verbs that uh, really jump out to get to the heart of what is happening and the meaning of our baptism. And the first word that we see is buried. That the first thing we see, the first verb, if you will, is that we are buried. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. And so one of the things that's, I guess you could say, interesting uh, when it comes to what we read in the scriptures and what has been translated from the original languages as the original language of the New Testament is Greek, uh, is the, you could say, the challenge Bible translators have as to when to, you could say, uh, translate something or when to transliterate something. For example, like, like the word in Greek, uh, dikonos. Uh, translated means servant. But transliterated is transliterated into deacon. Dikonos, deacon. It's just kind of, a, kind of an Englishing of that uh, Greek word. And, and we come up against the same uh, challenge, if you will, when it comes to the word for baptism. That the Greek word for baptism in the Greek is baptizo, uh, which literally means to bury, to dip, to plunge beneath, or to immerse. And really, it's a word that in its truest meaning captures this dramatic, even like a violent burial. Like, for example, like if a ship would have been wrecked and sunk at sea, it would have been baptized, like beneath the waters. And so what's important is to recognize like the, like the intent of baptism and this meaning of this word is not uh, a word that uh, finds its origin in some type of sentimental moment within a church service but to represent a dramatic death to, in our baptism, an old way of life. As it says in Romans 6.4, that we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. I heard uh, recently uh, the pastor uh, at my in-laws church share a story about uh, something that happened uh, with him on a baptism service at their church. And he was in the baptistry and a gentleman came forward to be baptized. And as he approached him, uh, he said, uh, hey, I'm a Navy SEAL and I would like for you to hold me under for two to three minutes. And he was serious. He was like, it's no problem. I'm trained for this. Uh, I, I want this to be a significant moment for me. Uh, there's just some things uh, that need to be buried under the water. And if you could just hold me under for two or three minutes. Uh, to which my in-laws pastor uh, was like, no. <laughs> like, there's no way I'm doing this. Like, like security is gonna be at me in just a few, I mean, like, like if I do, like no one will ever be baptized in our church again. Um, and, and so in this conversation, uh, the Navy SEAL asked, well, well, how long can you hold me under for? Uh, to which the pastor blurted out, 10 seconds. <laughs> and he was reflecting on, he's like, I'm not really sure why I said 10 seconds. Um, first of all, I never thought I'd probably be asked this question. Uh, furthermore, I thought it seemed like a reasonable counter to his request of two or three 
minutes. Uh, and so he goes to baptize this guy, and he says, you know, 10 seconds is a long time, especially during someone's baptism. One, two, three Navy SEAL, four Navy SEAL, five. He's like, I, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do it any longer. And, and, and the reason I share that and the reason I love this story is because it gets to the heart of what this man understood about his baptism. He understood that his baptism is significant. And I don't know this man's story at all, but he knew there was something and some things that needed to die, that needed to be buried beneath the water, to be left there. And not because there's anything special or holy about the water. I mean, if you're not, our baptistry is right. I mean, I promise you, there's nothing special. We don't fly it in from Rome or Jerusalem. I mean, this is Lake Decatur water. So maybe we need to pray for the people getting baptized for those reasons. Uh, it's just the water. But for this man and for what we experience, it's about who Jesus is. It's about what Jesus had done for him. And he wanted to enter fully into this moment of burying his sin, of burying his old way of life. First Peter chapter 3 says it this way. And Peter, he's uh, referencing uh, the flood waters of Noah's time, uh, saying that, and this water, it symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we see that buried is the first verb that we must understand when it comes to our baptism. Romans 6, 4, we were buried with him through baptism into death. But death does not have the last word. Death is not the end of the story. As it goes on, as we understand, it goes on in order that, and we'll come back to those three key words here in a moment, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may raise up and live a new life. And so the second key verb in celebrating our new life of being born again in our baptism is that we are raised. Baptism celebrates both our death to sin and self and our raising to new life led by the Lord by Jesus here on earth and again fully realized into eternal life. It says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter five that therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come the old has gone, and the new is here. Last week, uh, we celebrated this. Uh, we celebrated in Easter, we celebrated Jesus' resurrection from the grave. Uh, but we get that in order for an Easter Sunday, a resurrection Sunday to have happened, there had to be a death on a Friday. We, I mean, we get this. We understand that there's an in order that. Romans 6, 4, those three key words, in order that. In order that for there to be a resurrection, there had to be a death. And it was true for Jesus, and it's true for you. It's true for you. In order that for Romans 6, for you to be raised to new life, there has to be a death. There has to be a burial of your old way of life. Because in order for the new to come, the old has to be gone. And here's the thing with all of that. And I'm just gonna kind of just, if we were talking across the table one-on-one, -on -one, this is probably what I would say uh, to some of you, that I think the reason that 
some of you are maybe struggling with this whole following Jesus thing, this Christianity thing, like, like the rub for you in this is that you want, like, the new life, like you want, uh, you know, resurrected power, resurrected purpose, resurrected life, resurrected direction, resurrected joy, resurrected hope. But this does not come without dying to and burying first the old self. You see, and this is what we fully declare in our baptism, that we are burying in baptism in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, that we too may be raised up to a whole new life. And so as we come back to Nicodemus, uh, for him we realize that he had questions and some of the best answers that we know in life come from the best questions. And so like Nicodemus, we perhaps have questions, again, about how this baptism plays out, like who should and when should and what if and what abouts. Uh, and if, if, I guess if a sermon could have an FAQ section, uh, that's what we're gonna make this. Some frequently asked questions about baptism uh, to kind of in the, in the model of Nicodemus on what this looks like to be, you could say, born again and what baptism has to do with it. First question just might simply be like, who should get baptized? Who should get baptized? Well, according to the scriptures, anyone who is willing to repent or has already repented of their sins, uh, and by repent, that word literally means to change your mind, to change your direction from sin, from your way, the world's way, and towards the ways of following Jesus. To do that and confess that your faith, your belief, is in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. Uh, and what we see, this, this is from the scriptures, again, actually in the very first Christian sermon ever preached other than from the person of Jesus. We actually see, um, just actually uh, several weeks after what would have been Easter, Peter, who we looked at last week at Easter, how he met Jesus, and if you recall, we looked at it was his mishaps and his mistakes that we most know about him, and so after he denied Jesus and Jesus has reinstated Peter, just a few weeks after that, uh, Peter is, you know, Jesus, I'm gonna build my church on this rock, and so he starts uh, with Peter, the very first Christian sermon, to the people of Israel, Peter preaches. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, not pulling any punches there, uh, both Lord and Messiah, Lord and Savior. And it says that when the people heard this, that they were cut to the heart. Like they were, they were convicted by this. And they responded to Peter and the other apostles, well, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, and really, Peter's reply here, arguably more than any other passage, sums up the seal that baptism is on our commitment to die to self and be raised to new life in Christ. It says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so who should be baptized? According to the first Christian sermon ever, anyone, or actually he says every one of you who is willing to or has already repented of their sins and confessed your faith, your belief in Jesus Christ. As Peter goes on, he says, for this promise, it's for you, so those present, and it's also for your children and all who are far off. 
And so those who are far off, uh, maybe geographically, those who are far off spiritually, or, or maybe again, just even thinking far off generationally, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And it goes on to report that those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. And what's interesting to me about that is it doesn't say that, uh, well, about half of them thought, I'll go ahead and get baptized, while the other 1,500 said, ah, it's not really for me. No, we see clearly here that this is not an option. This is not a consideration to be made. This is a command for us to follow as all 3,000 were baptized into Christ. And so to the first question, who should be baptized? Anyone who has or is willing to repent of sin and confess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. To which maybe a follow-up question to that as you think about your own story, you might be, okay, uh, is there ever a circumstance uh, where I should be re-baptized? Should I ever get re-baptized? Well, I would say that depends. Uh, that we would say that if your baptism was based on your trusting in Jesus as uh, the only Son of God, your Savior and Lord, whether as a part of this congregation or another, then no, you do not need to be rebaptized. And if you'd say that, but, but since that day, I've, I've fallen into a, a sinful life or I've fallen away in my faith, then yes, you should confess and repent, but rebaptism is not necessary. However, if you lack the confidence in your initial baptism experience because uh, you don't remember it or you feel like you were coerced or your heart was not right with God at that time, then baptism, based on your trusting in Jesus as Savior and Lord, is in order. And with that, I would say one more point here when it comes to the question of like of sprinkling, like where does that fit into all of this? Like if I was sprinkled, like do I really need to be immersed? And I would just say that really the question reveals the difference. That as we looked at earlier, the word for uh, uh, baptism is baptizo, which means to bury, to dip, to plunge beneath, or immerse. And the Greek word for sprinkle uh, really is an entirely different word altogether. It's like the word that we would use uh, in English for rain. And so simply put, they're just two different things. Uh, and that baptism by immersing or plunging beneath the water upon a person's conscious decision to place their faith in Jesus Christ, this is the only model of baptism that we observe in the New Testament scriptures. And then from there, you say, okay, so where's the whole sprinkling thing come in? Well, as the history of the church marches on, hundreds of years after uh, the original church uh, that we read about in the book of Acts, uh, the introduction of sprinkling or christening babies as a primary mode of baptism came about uh, for two main reasons. Uh, one, regarding infant baptism, uh, in many ways was established uh, at a point in church history where a belief based on, you could say, a theological segment of original sin nature, like of us inheriting you know, Adam and Eve, Adam's sin in the garden, that it could only be corrected, if you will, by the waters of baptism. And thus this belief that if you wanted to be extra sure that your baby went to heaven, well, then get them baptized. And, and honestly, this thinking and this practice has been debated uh, ever since its inception. But in the end, there is no biblical precedent for infant baptism. 
and with that, in regards to the eternal security of children, uh, we remain confident of this. In faith, in the sovereignty of God's grace and his mercy, of his care for the souls of children who have entered his presence, whether at a young age or in utero. And from there, the, secondly, the, the mode, you could say, of baptism through sprinkling or christening or pouring uh, rather than immersion, it, it came into practice when immersion uh, was not possible, that due to uh, not having enough water available or other limiting circumstances. But with that, over the centuries, sprinkling became, uh, in many traditions, a, a normative practice uh, that is still practiced today in several Christian traditions, whether for children or adults. That's really now just continues on largely rooted in a matter of convenience. However, I think we would agree that the point of baptism has never been convenience. That the point is to identify with Jesus' resurrection and his death. And death is many things. But it is never convenient. And with that, um, I, I would say one final thought uh, when it comes to uh, infant baptism, or perhaps even as you consider and think about maybe if that's part of your story, your own experience of being baptized as an infant, uh, and, and kind of reconcile all this in your own head and heart. Uh, as it, really, I just recognize that for several of you, like probably the leading edge on this issue for you is like, Honestly, you just don't want to be offensive to like your parents or your grandparents and, and somehow send this accidental message that the baptism that they arranged for you as a baby is somehow like, like not good enough. But I would invite you to consider this, that is it offensive or is it possible that it's actually an answer, like, like a fulfillment to the prayers that they prayed for you over you as an infant? You know, I think about my own story, my, my grandmother who, uh, when I stayed with her on weekends, who would faithfully bring me to mass. And, and I think about um, the reality that I didn't step into a decision to follow Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior until I was a teenager, much later, as a 16-year-old. But uh, my grandmother, who at that time had since passed, I have to believe that my baptism at 16 years old, upon my profession of faith, was an answer to her prayers for me uh, as a six-month-old or a six-year-old, as a fulfillment and a dedication of me of what she desired and expressed her and my parents at my infant sprinkling. So that's something for us to consider in that question. And then lastly, and this is the last one we'll tackle here together, uh, but I would argue maybe is the first question. And that is simply this. Do I have to be baptized? And I get this one from time to time. Like, do, I, like, do I really have to do, like, do I have to be baptized? And honestly, this one's the easiest. Because if you want to be obedient to Jesus Christ, then you do. I mean, think about Jesus himself, who was without sin, had no need to be baptized as we understand it, but yet still chose to surrender and submit himself by having John the Baptist, or more accurately, John the Baptizer, baptize him in the Jordan River. And then even with that, we, we look at the words of Jesus, who says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And then in John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, 
you will obey what I command. Look, if Jesus is the Lord of your life, you're not looking for loopholes. You're looking for how you can follow him fully, become a more devoted follower of Jesus. And while I guess you could say the act of baptism, while it might seem like a very simple or unimportant act to our modern minds, it's important to Jesus. And so it should be important to you. And so as we consider these things, you might be asking the question, okay, like where do I go from here? Like where do we go with this? And for you, I would respond to that question uh, with the words of a man by the name of Ananias who answered this question for the Apostle Paul, actually, who wrote like two-thirds of the Bible at his conversion, at his point of placing his faith in Jesus Christ. These words were given to him, uh, to the Apostle Paul, and that was simply this. And now, in his conversion, his decision to follow Jesus, he says, to Ananias says to him, now what are you waiting for? Like, what are you waiting for? Like, let's get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. What are you waiting for? And to that question, I would invite you to respond the way in another baptism story, a guy by the, uh, by the name of Philip who shares his faith with an Ethiopian eunuch as they're traveling in a chariot down the road in Acts chapter eight. Um, as they travel along the road, he accepts Christ, and, and they come to some water. And the eunuch just says, look, here is water. Like, why shouldn't I be baptized? Like, he's basically like, okay, like, why should I put this off? Like, why would I prevent what the Lord has purposed for me in this? And so then he just says, uh, it says that he gave orders, and I love this, to stop the chariot. To stop the chariot. And I think for some of you here today, that's the word that you need. You need to stop the chariot. You need to stop the excuses, stop the putting it off, stop to, oh, I'll get to it someday. You need to stop the chariot, and like the Ethiopian eunuch, both Philip and the eunuch, they went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And so with that, I just offer back to you the words of the Apostle Paul for your life. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, wash your sins away, calling on his name. And so here's how we're gonna do this. Uh, maybe you're here and you're like, okay, like I'm still kind of in the Nicodemus camp. Like I still need to have some conversations. We don't have to meet at night, but we can get together and have some follow-up questions and conversations if you still have some about what baptism looked like for you. But maybe for a lot of you, just realize, you know what? Like this is all the discussion I needed. Like I'm good, stop the chariot, here's some water. Like what are we waiting for? Like let's do this. And so. Wherever you're at in those two spaces, if you know that's the conversation that you need to have, then we would just simply invite you to text the word baptism to our church phone number, which is, I know it's kind of a weird way to go about this, but it's just this quick, easy opportunity to like not let the day get away from you and just close the gap, like close the gap between the conviction you feel about this and the commitment you need to make uh, to obey Jesus, to follow Jesus, whether again, that's to have some more questions answered or just say, hey, no, I'm in, stop the chariot, like sign me up. And then from there, we'll, we'll connect with you. And with that, uh, we're gonna uh, have actually baptisms here over the next four weeks of the remainder of this Meet Jesus series. Because 
I mean, as far as we could conclude, there is no better way to celebrate uh, our meeting Jesus through the eyes of others than to actually celebrate how we meet Jesus in the waters of baptism. So we're pumped. Over the next four weeks, we're going to have potentially you, uh, along with several others, being baptized in the midst of our service during our Meet Jesus series. And so with that, I want to invite all of you just to stand up with me here in the West Auditorium, the East Auditorium, and then online, take a posture of worship. As as I would say, we all respond to this reality of what Jesus has done for us and what we just celebrated in the Easter story. That again, if you're here, you're like, man, I was baptized a long time ago. It was a special thing, but I hadn't thought about it much. Like, today's a a reminder. I love what Paul says all the time. Let me remind you of the gospel. Let me remind you of what is foundational and, and the meaning that your baptism holds in that journey, uh, or or maybe again, whether it's I've got questions, uh, or it's like, hey, stop the chariot, sign me up. Like, wherever you are at in that, we can celebrate together the truth of what this means. It's not about the water. It's about, as it says in Romans 6, 4, that we're buried, we participate with Jesus Christ and what he did at Good Friday and Easter, that we're buried with him in baptism, into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too now live a new life. And so let's pray together, giving thanks for this reality in our lives. Heavenly Father, thank you for the good news, the gospel that we've been reminded of today, that you gave your one and only son, that whoever gives their trust, their faith, their belief in him is given the gift of a whole new life, raised to new life, led by the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, now lives inside of us. And so, Father, we celebrate the burying of the old as we celebrate even more the rising of the new, your work within us, so that we might experience that third verb in that verse, so we might live, live a new life, life and life to the full, the words of your son in John 10, 10. May it be for our lives, and in this moment, God, hear our prayers, our praise, giving thanks to you for what you made possible in all of that. So Lord, hear our song as we sing together to you. Amen and amen. And with that, would you sing with us?